Welcome to Ufalamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. The podcast has been on a break for the month of July, so there's a lot to catch up on. For example, yesterday, Rwandans voted overwhelmingly to re-elect their president, Paul Kagame, for a third term in office. There's been a lot of talk about this election, primarily because the outcome has been a foregone conclusion. Everyone knew Kagame would win, and that the officially announced figures on voter turnout and Kagame's vote share would be upwards of 90%. Melina Platas Izama, a political scientist at NYU Abu Dhabi, has a piece coming out later today in the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog, where she challenges some of the conventional narratives on Kagame's support in Rwanda. Whatever you think about Kagame or third terms or free and fair elections, I encourage you to read Melina's take. She was in Rwanda this week, traveling to far-flung areas to try and see the election from the perspective of Rwandan citizens. I also encourage our listeners to check out the Washington Post op-ed written by Diane Shima Rigara, a Rwandan activist and former contender for the Rwandan presidency. Rigara writes about the harassment she and her supporters faced after she announced in May that she would run for office. Included in the op-ed is a video of Rigara being interviewed by Karen Atia, the global opinions editor at The Post. In the video, Atia provides some context on gender and politics in Rwanda. Another East African country will be having its election just four days after Rwanda, Kenya. There's simply too much that has happened since our chat with Ken Apollo in episode 23 to properly get our listeners up to speed. Especially given the recent death of the head of IT of Kenya's Electoral Commission, Christopher Msando, it's important to us that we point listeners interested in understanding what's going on to some quality coverage. And thankfully, we can do that with the excellent BBC podcast, Kenya Election Watch, hosted by Dickens Olewe. The most recent episode posted online Thursday, and it features insights from writer and political analyst Nigel Nyabula, Birmingham University professor Nick Cheesman, journalist Christine Mungai, Africa Czech Kenya editor Alphonse Shiundu, and researcher Abdullahi Boaru. We want to wish Kenyans a safe and fair election. Sometime after the final results are announced, we'll feature a conversation with political scientist Kathleen Klaus, an expert on Kenyan politics. She'll help us understand the election outcomes, whatever they may be. As summer is drawing to a close, I hope our listeners are keeping up with the African Politics Summer Reading Spectacular, our book series at the Monkey Cage. My partner in crime, Laura C., has a post this week reviewing three books, all short histories of African leaders published by Ohio University Press. The books featured are biographies of Julius Nyerere, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, and Tabo Mbeki. Check out our website, ufamuafrica.com, Monday morning, when we'll post links to the pieces mentioned here, as well as bonus links to other things we found interesting. In this week's episode, we speak with Anna Mwaba, a PhD candidate at the University of Florida. We talk about the African Union, election monitoring, and the unintended consequences of political science research on Africa by those of us trained in the West. Thank you, Anna, for joining us today at Ufahamu Africa. 
Thank you so much for having me, Kim. I'm so happy to be here. Now, one focus of your research has been on the African Union, the Continental Union of African States headquartered in Addis Ababa. When you're teaching, say, an undergraduate who's eager and interested, but perhaps uninformed, how would you first describe what the AU is and what it does? So the African Union consists of 54 African countries that seek to address economic, political, and social issues on a continental platform. So it was originally formed in 1963 as the Organization of African Unity. Their main goal was to challenge the presence of colonial powers on the continent and to also serve as this united front against the common enemy. Mm -hmm. However, in later years, they realized that the OAU, the way it was formed as a way to fight against colonial powers, was not equipped to tackle the the issues that came with the modern world. And so it transitioned in 1999. The decision was made that it would have to create an organization that was more productive and was better able to tackle current economic political issues that Africa was facing. And this led to the creation and the establishment of the African Union, which was culminated in 2002 at the Durban Summit in South Africa, where the AU was officially launched with its first assembly of the heads of state of the African Union. The AU seeks to promote continental integration through shared political institutions, peace and security, to advocate for common African positions on an international platform, to promote human rights, gender equality, and social justice, amongst other issues. Mm -hmm. And in 2013, it actually launched its Agenda 2063. And this agenda emphasizes the values that seek to improve citizen lives through education, skills provision, uh, better housing, deepening democratic values, and the increased institutional and leadership capacity development on the continent. The main difference between the OAU and the AU, I find, is the AU is a lot more committed to supporting democratic values and deepening governance structures in Africa. Right. Can you give some examples of that? So, for example, the OAU was very much staunch in defending non-interference. So, this right, so notion, not interfering exactly. in another country's in domestic politics. Domestic politics. However, the AU has realized that this process of interference actually undermines the ability to be a political actor on the continent. So in 2013, we saw it step in and actually suspend Egypt when uh, President Morsi was uh, deposed in a coup. In right. 2015, we saw with the abduction of Burkina Faso's president, Michel Kafando, who was right before the elections were held in October, he was abducted in a cabinet meeting. And here the AU also stepped up and said, this is a violation of democratic norms, it's a violation of the AU mandate. And it's also taken an increased role in security matters, as we've seen with the initiation of peacekeeping mission in Somalia and Sudan, and its recent discussion on the fact that Qatar has pulled out of the Djibouti-Eritrean peacekeeping mission. And so it's made a public announcement that the AU is on top of this, and they're watching the situation, and seeing themselves as a key political, security, economic actor on the continent. So it's taking a more visible role compared to what the AU did back in in its time. Right. So earlier this year, you actually wrote a piece for Africa as a Country titled, The African Union is Now Complete, But at What Cost? In that piece, you wrote about the recent readmission of Morocco to the AU after a 33-year hiatus from the AU and its predecessor, the OAU. What did you want readers to take away from your piece about Morocco's 33-year absence and about its readmission? 
So when I first heard about Morocco's interest in joining the AU, I was really surprised. My first huh. reaction was, why now? In 1984, it left the AU because it felt that the AU had no right to grant sovereignty to Western Sahara. And so my piece explores the implication of this readmission, given that King Mohammed VI requested that Western Sahara be removed from the AU. Mm-hmm. It did not recognize it as a real state and referred to it as a phantom state. Right. And so for listeners who aren't familiar, Western Sahara declared independent adjacent to Morocco. Morocco, but then Morocco claims it's part of its own territory. Exactly. So from Morocco, they see Western Sahara um, and the Sahara people as belonging to the Moroccan kingdom. Right. And so their terms of joining the AU was that Western Sahara no longer be recognized, so they could assume Western Sahara back into Morocco. But this request wasn't accepted. So that basically, Morocco joined the AU with no terms. And despite this clear disregard for Western Sahara sovereignty and for the Sahara people's determination, 39 countries voted in favor of Morocco's return. 39 out of the 53 that were members at the time. So here I make the point that as the fifth largest economy in Africa, and given the AU's consistent funding challenges, hmm. it sacrificed its own mandate and principles to secure Morocco as a means of financing. And I think I was especially concerned with the implications this has for the AU in the future. Hmm. So if the AU was willing to undermine its own mandate and principles for financing mm-hmm. in this case... Mm-hmm. What will it mean for its political role moving forward? Right. So what else is at risk when it comes to the AU establishing itself as a political actor? And what does Morocco bode for that future? Right. And the role that it seeks to play in the AU. And I just wonder if the AU would be actually undermined by these internal contradictions that it's done by inviting Morocco back in. Let's talk a little bit about the future of the AU. Earlier when you were describing you know, what the AU is, you talked about one of its foundations as being about continental integration. Right. And as we watch Britain make moves to exit the European Union and a rise in nationalism and autonomy in Europe, are there any implications for regional governance in Africa? Put another way, is there any threat of instability for the AU similar to what we're seeing with Brexit in the EU? That's a valid concern, given that a lot of the AU institutions are modeled on the EU. Mm. This idea of a European parliament is echoed by the Pan-African parliament. Mm-hmm. And so if the, if the AU serves as example for the for the AU, then what's going to happen if the AU is failing at what it promised to do, which is this level of regional integration? But surprisingly, the AU is actually moving towards increased integration in the past two years. Uh-huh. They have continued to push for this common Africa position so that Africa is on the same page when it comes to issues with the UN or the right. ICC. Right. So Africa being put forth as a continental actor one united front rather than divided countries. Right, a whole block of votes, whole block for of example. Votes. Exactly. Yeah. And they're also working on this free trade zone as part of their agenda 2063. And even though it might take a while for us to get one, <laughs> this idea of a visa-free passport. Right. Um, so pushing for Africans to be able to travel more within Africa without having to worry about getting a visa and going through all the requirements that you have to when you're traveling within Africa, as you can right now in Europe, which is get up with your with your license and go from France to Germany. Right. So that's I find that really interesting. But I think it's a it's an economic reason. A lot of Africa has very small economies, so mm-hmm. they need each other to survive. So if the AU is able to reach the level of integration that the EU actually did, yeah. it's in their best interest to stay together. Right. And also this idea of nationalism. Mm -hmm. Nationalism is not so much at risk in Africa. Mm. You know, I think most people would even call for more of an AU presence. Right. You know, the AU is not really as involved as the EU is. The parliament makes a decision. It's not binding as it is in Europe. You're not really threatening nationalism when you don't really, when you let countries 
basically self-determine themselves. So your dissertation research actually studies one particular aspect of Mm -hmm. uh, what the AU does, and that's election observation. What do election observers do, and is there anything particularly special about AU election observers, say as compared to those sent by the European Union or the Commonwealth or even domestic election observers from local political parties, NGOs, or faith-based organizations? So election observers are tasked with assessing the political environment during an election Mm -hmm. and to also establish the extent to which a country is adhering to international and national guidelines Mm -hmm. for elections. So their job is basically to look out for fraudulent activity or behavior that in any way could undermine the integrity of the elections being held. In the case of the AU, it obtains its mandate from the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance, which was adopted in 2012, and the OAU-AU Declaration on the Principles Governing Democratic Elections in Africa that was adopted in 2002, along with other relevant international documents and the laws set by the country under observation. So I would say the main thing that sets the AU observers aside, especially from the EU and the Commonwealth missions, is its composition. So these missions consist of African observers who tend to be a lot more familiar with regional affairs. Mm -hmm. So you have members sent from the Permanent Representatives Committee of the African Union, members of the Pan-African Parliament, Mm -hmm. other election management bodies in Africa, Mm -hmm. and civil society organizations. So these are people who are on the ground, who who understand and following the politics a lot more closely than the EU and Commonwealth missions. And so when they come to monitor an election, they're looking at things through a more nuanced lens, Uh rather than just applying this model of what a good election looks like that's right. been written out by political experts at that higher level. Right. But here, granted, the EU does have a lot more funding yes. than the African missions. But again, this you can't really undermine the, the strength that comes with being more familiar with, with the process. Right. And, um, and the context. And the context. And even the, the EU itself has recognized the, the role that the AU plays. The AU has, as in 2007, for example, following the Kenyan elections, made the announcement that from now on, every single member state would have to be monitored by AU missions. If the EU did something like that, they'd be, be argued as being, you know, you're controlling Africa, you're putting, you're, you're trying to dictate what we should, should and shouldn't do, put your models of democracy on us. But the AU coming from this place of being a partner, mm-hmm. you know, we're supporting each other, we're a union. Right. They have the authority to say that, and there was actually no backlash to that comment, that statement. Interesting. So they're able to provide this middle ground. Right. Unlike domestic observers who can be very close to the election. Right. Granted, they do. They have eyes on the ground more so in the AU. Mm-hmm. But this is their, their country. These are their lives at stake. The election matters a lot more for them than it does for the AU. Right. And so I think domestic observers, they do bring a different aspect to monitoring and mm-hmm. supporting an election process but they don't have that level of distance from the election that the AU does. Right. And the AU doesn't have as much as the EU. The EU is very far removed. They're a completely right. foreign body. Right. So the AU can serve as this middle ground of observation, especially if they're able to deal with their funding issues, make their missions stronger. I think AU observers can really bring something that domestic and, and, and fully international observers cannot. 
Great. Well, thanks for that. So as you know, you participated in the ALAC workshop that Zachariah Monpilly and I organized at Smith College in May. And as you know, our, our last episode before we took a break for July featured Zachariah's remarks about decolonizing the curriculum and about what it means to study African politics in the West. And he raised six questions about studying African politics in the West. And I wanted to take this opportunity to ask you one of those questions. So I wondered if you could share, you know, from your own experiences and your own ideas, what are the intended and unintended political consequences of our work, right? Our work as Africanist political scientists based in the West. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's a really tough question to answer. But I would say that the main unintended effects of our work is by promoting this idea that Western academic work is in some way better than any other parts of the world. So we go through, we have theory testing, we mm-hmm. have we go to the field, we collect data, we collect evidence for our arguments, we go through peer review process with right. other scholars who you know verify and validify our work that other scholars in Africa may not go through. So we're unintentionally leaving out some of these critical voices from the study of political science. So works that could contribute to our own understanding and fill in the void that we sometimes, especially making theory, we're not as familiar with as someone who who lives with and is able to understand the intricacies of the politics at that national level that we, being on the outside and going for a couple months at a time, may not be able to see. Right, right. Have you had any experiences where this phenomenon has been made more clear to you, right, where you can see see the difference between scholarship that relies on, quote, the canon that's taught here predominantly in the West versus, say, scholars' voices on the continent. Definitely. I think, especially for my own research, I'm looking more from like from the AU policy standpoint and looking at the works that the AU has been pushing forward as setting an agenda for African politics and how mm-hmm. the AU works and mm-hmm. looking at how the EU bases a lot of its ideas of democracy over, over the like, Western theories of what democracy should look like and right. how democracy should operate, how elections should work. Right. And, you know, how, you know, there's certain steps to a successful election and if you miss one step, you failed completely. Right. So the AU makes the argument that you know, especially in my discussion in the field when I was doing field work in 2015, they tend to bring out these theories that don't apply. Right. But there's no effort to try and understand how they can be made better. Right. So we're not saying completely scrap these theories. You right. know, they, there's a lot of merit to our basic understanding of democracy and demo- democratic evolution and how democracy has developed. But also try and see from the other side. Mm-hmm. Try and see what has worked right. instead of completely disregarding theories that may come from the bottom up that can contribute to what we're trying to put down on some of these situations and create models out of. So our models should be a lot more interactive. Right. I I think in terms, if we're going to really contribute to political science and understanding of science and stop falling under this thing of, are we predictive? We're not being predictive. Well, maybe we're not right. being predictive because you don't understand. Exactly. Uh, maybe exactly. that's what we're feeling. And have you had an opportunity to interact with scholars in this way, in this, you know, with uh, scholars who are working on the continent in this way where you can have that kind of an exchange of ideas? Mm-hmm. And, and do you feel like it changes your work at all? 
I definitely. So I was recently in an edited volume that was produced on the Malawian elections, Mm -hmm. just trying to understand how far Malawi has come and exposed to scholars who work in Malawi's democratic um, trajectories and civil society and just trying to see like how dynamic our understanding of politics can be if we just pay attention to some of these nuances. Right. And that volume was co-edited by Michael Waman at the University of Missouri and Nandini Patel, who is a Malawian academic working in Malawi. And my first draft, actually, and I'm I'm very okay to admit this, was told that, you know, it's very technical. You're kind of missing a few of these things. And I realized when I read over it, oh my goodness, I am, because I was coming from it from this whole ABC, like this is what I've been trained to look at things for. The theory says this, and it's what I should expect. But I wasn't looking at it from having stayed in Malawi, having observed the Malawi elections and seeing that how complicated the politics actually were, right. and having this simplified understanding of what election monitoring should and shouldn't do was right. basically influencing what I was seeing. Right. So I was judging the Malawian situation from my very narrow Western elections do this and election monitors should do this and this why Malawi failed. Right. <laughs> so it, it really helped me step back and rethink a lot of my theories for my dissertation and also being okay with the fact that sometimes our theories just don't work. Right. And that's okay. It doesn't that make is. me less of an academic. No. Um, In fact, recognizing that I think is really important because it can allow us, as you were saying earlier, to improve our theories, to bring better arguments to new data we would confront in the future. Well, thank you so much, Anna. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun today. Until next week, find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by ALAC and by the Government Department. Rory Moomin, Smith College Class of 2020, is our research and production assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Our featured song this week is Love by the Kenyan band Sarabi. We think they have a great message fitting for this last weekend before Kenya's election. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.
Love will raise 